Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you all for coming tonight. I'm Danny Nobles. I'm the new chair of the Freud Museum. And uh, it gives me great pleasure to welcome Lisa Abignanesi, the former chair of the Freud Museum, who, uh, as I'm sure you all know, is a, a celebrated novelist, cultural historian, and the author most recently, although I wouldn't be surprised if she's got a new book uh, on the horizon, but most recently of Trials of Passion, uh, which is what we're going to talk about tonight. Um, we have an hour and a half for our conversation. Um, I, I do want to have a bit of a Q&A with, uh, with yourself, members of the audience. So I think Lisa and I will talk about the book for a good 45 minutes or so, and then we'll open it up. Uh, Lisa had also kindly agreed to sign uh, copies. If you don't have your copy yet, there are some uh, copies downstairs in the, in the bookshop. But uh, So that's, that's the format of the evening. Clock. So, uh, I've got a watch. from time to time I'll probably do this, or you just remind me of, uh, of the time. I mean, first of all, I want to congratulate you on, uh, on, on this magnificent volume, um, which is very rich in historical detail, um, but it's also a, a compelling read. Uh, I, I, I think it... It, it, it reads like a detective novel in, 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 in places. And, uh, and that's obviously because you, your story, your narrative is, uh, is, is, is really drawing the reader in. Uh, but I think it's also be, because you really manage to um, evoke the, the, the passions and the, um, dare I say, the excitement in all its lurid detail of, of, of the, the cases that, that you are discussing. Now, the book, the book concentrates on, on, on three cases. Um, one set in Brighton uh, in the uh, early 1870s. Uh, the second one uh, set in, in Paris towards the uh, just before the Belle Epoque, right? um, it depends. It depends when you find it. And then uh, the third one is is set in the United States during the early years of the twentieth century. Now, um, I, I'm not at all a specialist in, in crimes of passion, but when I started reading this, I thought, well, you must have had quite a few cases to to choose from. Um, why did you decide to, to focus on these three cases? Two women, one man, one in England, one in France, one in America. Is it because you thought that they were paradigmatic? They were somehow representative of, of the kinds of discussions that, that were going on? Um, or is it because, because you felt that these three cases allowed you to, um, to show the, the disparities between how, say, the French would handle crimes of passion compared to how the English or indeed the Americans would, would, would handle them. Well, you're, you're right in both, but let me, let me just take a step back from that, because I think this is a book about trials of passion. In other words, I'm putting um, passions in the arena of the courtroom and if you like, trying to recreate some of the drama of that courtroom um, 
as it unfolds in some of the drama versions. But the way I chose the cases was, was uh, my ulterior motive, if you like, was to complete some of the work that had begun with Mad, Bad and Sad and then gone on and on about love, which is to look at the way in which, in this case, the mind doctors intersect with the legal profession. So I wanted cases where the uh, doctors, in this case psychiatrists or early, earlier than psychiatry, specialists in the emotions, specialists in the passions, the alienists, those who confronted people who were said to be alienated from themselves, and in that sense also alienated from society, were brought into the arena of the courtroom to actually think about what it was that these perpetrators of crimes had done. And having done them, were they to be considered insane in the terms of psychiatry, insane in the terms of the law, or not? Were they just bad? Were they aberrant? Um, so that was the way in which I tried to choose the cases. This isn't always easy, first of all, because um, although there's an awful lot of material about crime, most of the crimes of what we might call passion um, are domestic crimes. Um, in other words, husbands kill wives, and um, very occasionally wives will murder husbands or will attempt to. Um, I, I didn't want to do those very ordinary uh, um, um, crimes, if you like. And you, you may later on ask me why that was the case, mm -hmm. but, but, but I'm just telling you now that that's not what I was interested in. I was interested in, in the cases which were actually um, uh, different and rather more special than that. Um, because nobody thought ever people killing their spouses was an instance of madness. <laughs> I think maybe because they, it was too ordinary an event or an attempt to take the life of a spouse was considered to be too ordinary. Um, and this, may, you may want to talk about you know, what, goes wrong with it, what goes wrong within family situations or domestic situations. But in any case, the mind doctors, I'll just call them that because you know, they, they include all the types of um, were very rarely brought in in these cases, except on the continent once they started to be part of the court process itself. In other words, became servants of the court. In Britain, that never happened and has still, um, still only happens very irregularly. But in France, they have a position. They are forensic psychiatrists and they work, if you like, for the state, for the legal system. Um, so I chose my cases on the basis that A, they were not domestic crimes, um, B, they involved the passions and these extreme emotions, and um, C, mind doctors came into play because I was interested in the rise of the expert psychiatric witness and, and how they came into the arena of the court. The fourth thing that I was interested in, I should never count on the platform because I can never remember what it was that I was going to say. Um, so I have now I think this is I the fourth Oh, reason. no, I know what the fourth thing is. The fourth thing is simply that because I'm interested in the way that the language of psychiatry, the language of alienism, and eventually the language of psychoanalysis influences um, or shapes the way we consider 
our own emotions and the way society considers the emotions. I wanted these trials to be much-reported trials. Okay, so the, these are prominent. I mean, you know, today it would be Oscar Pistorius, or, um, I mean, all the cases that are on the moment, which I think are also, in some ways, trials of passion, to do with uh, long-remembered um, ills of the sexual harassment or sexual abuse sort, um, which actually do fall into this terrain of the crime of passion. You know, we can think about that. So that, that's the thing. Now, why the, the countries? That was in the second part of your question. Um, I'm, I'm by, perhaps by, by reason of migration and family history and then education, um, I'm a comparatist. I mean, I love comparing um, cultural and social moments, historically but also now. And I do that because it seems to me that the, way, the differences between systems, as well as the similarities, actually put into the light of day what it is that we ourselves think and think we know. Um, if you don't have that, that space for the comparative, it's very hard to be an anthropologist of the everyday, <laughs> which is, in a sense, the kind of thing that I'm interested in. I'm interested in how human beings are made up, how, how, you know, how they put themselves together, how we put ourselves together in particular social history. Uh, the first case that you discuss already raises a number of very interesting questions about accountability, um, about the relationship between the legal system and uh, the psychiatric profession. Um, if you allow me to summarize it, um, and you can correct me, <laughs> you can correct me um, uh, if I'm wrong. Um, the Borgia of Brighton. The Borgia, we say. Right. Um, <laughs> the Borgia of Brighton. Christiana Edmonds, who in 1870 falls in love with her doctor and, and starts a correspondence, uh, although it's a correspondence that primarily... Uh, falls flat on the fact that her quote-unquote beloved isn't particularly responsive. Um, but at one point, uh, she, in a moment of passion, we can say, uh, forces um, a, a, a poison chocolate into the mouth of her beloved's wife. When, when, when the doctor in question... Um, when the doctor in question uh, becomes suspicious that she, Christiana Edmonds, his patient, uh, could be responsible for th this, this act. Uh, the wife doesn't die, by the way. Uh, okay. um, she goes to extraordinary lengths to cover it up or, or to... Um, to, to demonstrate to, to him and to others that uh, she herself is not responsible for this and, and, and that it's part of a, a broader, much more intricate uh, plot to, to poison people. Um, so she goes to extraordinary lengths. So suddenly she 
she enters, uh, she comes out of, of this moment of passion and, 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 and she starts acting in a premeditated way, you could say. I mean, that's at least my uh, interpretation. And she becomes much more planned. Um, and as a result of uh, this sophisticated uh, plot, uh, a, a boy dies, and, and, and that's how she comes to the attention of, of, of the police. Uh, she stands trial. Uh, the psychiatrists uh, in question uh, decide that she's not accountable, responsible for her acts, and she ends up at Broadmoor, um, where she spends the rest of her days. <laughs> Right. <laughs> I hope I didn't spoil the fun. <laughs> um, but the way you tell the story is, is you know, it, it's 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 amazing. Um, and uh, and and by the way, I should also say that you're very careful not to take sides. Uh, I mean, on occasion I sense I'm glad, that. I'm glad you. you uh, on occasion I, I sense that. Uh, you feel sympathetic towards one or the other, but on the whole, I, I think the narrative is is sufficiently neutral for the reader, him or herself, to um, uh, to take sides if he or she yes, wants I'm, to do. I'm very wary of, of actually, you know, interpreting on the basis of not enough material. You can't stand in for what history doesn't tell you. Um, if I if I if I wanted to, I would then write a novel. I mean, that would be which I also do, and then I, I could do that. I mean, I could make it up, if you like. Yeah. But I, I'm very careful not to. Yeah. 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 Now, throughout your account of, of Christiana Edmonds' life and, and her trial, you, you emphasize, and in a sense it's also on the cover of the book, it's, you know, it's how she looks. So she stands in the court. Um, how shall we describe this? Uh, well... Uh, Okay, let me just comment on that, because, you know, how she looks... Don't forget, I've, what have I done to write this book? I've trolled archives. I've read a lot of contemporary newspaper accounts. Um, the reporting of trials before shorthand was taken in courts was done verbatim by press reporters. Um, and so there's an awful lot of commentary that I've been privy to, which has to do with the look of the person dog. And um, this is the case both for men, but much more so for women. The way women look in the dog is much described by the press. It's still the case. Um, here in this country, we're not allowed to, to, to you know, talk about these things. Um, there's still a, you know, a contempt of court laws to apply. In other countries, that's not the case. You can say anything you want yes. at any point during yes. the trial process. And the commentary on women's appearance is a very important part of that process. Mm. And how a woman looks, what class she might be, how she buttons up or doesn't, or unbuttons, um, particularly now, is much commented on, in anything to do with the passions mm. or sexuality. So, um, I mean, lawyer friends of mine say, and I, I've quoted them, Elena Kennedy, for example, uh, talks about that, you know, before she goes into courtroom to defend somebody who has committed a grievous crime, a female who has committed a grievous crime. She will always make sure that appearances are exactly what the judge and the jury want to believe is the way virtuous women look. Mm. And even though we live in a post, an age after 
and the ascendancy of virtue, it still plays its role, you know, whether unconsciously or in terms of just setting the stage. Um, so if, if I go into court looking, you know, wearing red shoes, oh my God, that's it, I've had it. You know, the judge is going to set me down and give me a fine or whatever. Um, you know, if I go looking like a civil servant, that's far better. So I, I, describe, I describe Christiana because she is described in the newspaper reports. Do you think that her looks, the way she maintained her composure, uh, neither denying nor repenting, uh, but, but remaining simultaneously austere and, uh, how shall I put it, um, well, indeed, composed. And uh, do you think that had actually an influence on the way she was treated? This, this um, because very... psychiatric assessment at the time was not nearly as sophisticated. I'm not saying it's terribly sophisticated now, but it wasn't nearly as sophisticated as it is now. And I wouldn't have been surprised if the psychiatrists themselves were actually influenced by, by her own... Uh, her appearance. Her appearance. Uh, and that, that has, may have also affected the fact that she spent the rest of her days in Broadmoor. Well, I mean, there's several things at play here. First of all, let me just say that Broadmoor, which is, of course, the, the criminal uh, institution for the, the institution of the criminally insane, which had just come into being a year before Christopher's trial, mm. um, is, if you like, where she sent to because she is considered to be insane, not by the trial process itself, but on appeal. Okay? So, and, and this is very important, because there is no point in the trial where Christiana herself gives testimony. There is no point in the trial where she is herself on the stand. All right? She is simply the accused, and much of the material that goes on in court doesn't actually say anything about her feelings, her passion for uh, Dr. Beard. Because this is not what she is being charged for. She is not, in, after the initial hearings, being charged for the attempt on his wife's life, but she is being charged with the murder of a small boy, where she can be shown either to be coincidentally mm -hmm. involved or not. Um, and in terms of the court, in terms of, of British system of garnering evidence, that is what is important. The French system functions quite differently. We'll come to that. We can talk about that. But, but, but the British system is interested in evidence. And the evidence, uh, 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 the matter of the trial, is all about how Christiana put poison in the chocolates, how she obtained the chocolates, how there are witnesses to her attempts to put poison in these chocolates, how they're then proliferated, where they're left in the streets of Brighton, and then after you know, many months, how, um, when she's still trying to prove to Dr. Beard her, uh, her, her real or imagined lover, and we haven't talked about that yet, um, uh, trying to prove to him that she is innocent of trying to poison his wife, mm. that this is not what she has done. He is her, her lover, and she is a respectable. So, what's proved in court is just this trail of evidence, and what's examined in court is just this trail of evidence. Nothing at all to do with her feelings. So, in a sense, my impression of Christiana in the courtroom is that she is sitting there completely composed, 
finding these proceedings really very interesting, as if, you know, oh gosh, look what I managed to do. Look how many people are talking about me. Um, but it has, but she's still waiting for the trial to go on and on after the verdict has come. Because at no point has she been actually allowed to say, I did this for the man I love. I did this because, perhaps she might have said, I did this because this man seduced me and I thought he loved me. This is certainly the tenor of her letters. So um, she's, she's in a sense a kind of surprise being. Now, when equally she could have said the fact that this boy died or in, indeed that I put other people at risk was collateral damage. That's right. Right? Uh, she could have said, look, uh, I didn't really intend to kill them. It just so happened that some people died. Um, but all of that was, was driven by my passion for, for Dr. B. Yeah, of course, of course. And, and, you know, I'm not saying she's guiltless. The question is, is she completely deluded? Or does she actually know what she's doing? And, it, you know, the doctors who were called in were very senior doctors in their time. You know, if you're interested in all that, you have to read it. It's too much to, to go into. But, Please do. <laughs> but but um, the doctors who were called in did think, not all of them, not uniformly, but that on balance she was mad. Um, and they used their own terms. And she was mad even in terms of law. In other words, there's a very, very high bar for insanity in criminal cases. That's still true today. There's a very, very high bar. Much higher than for civil cases. So, for example, you know, if I wanted to prove that, I don't know, I would, if my children wanted to prove that I was demented, which of course they think, um, <laughs> if my children wanted to prove that I was demented and not capable of managing my property or my, my goods, um, it would be much easier for them to prove that, certainly in the Victorian period, uh, than it would be for um, proof to come into court if I had actually committed a crime. In other words, criminal courts set a much higher bar certainty. And the bar is simply did the criminal, did the person in the job, did the accused know the difference between right and wrong when they were committing um, the act. Now, in her case, there was another major disadvantage, if you can call it that. Uh, there's a family history. Uh, her, her father... Well, that might have been an advantage. Well, it depends... More than to uh, I, I was going to ask you about what life would have been at Broadwell uh, in the late 19th century. So, um, we, can, we can talk about advantages and disadvantages. The fact of the matter is that, that in, in reading your account, I thought, yeah, there is a family history there, um, uh, some of her siblings um, so had, had, had suffered from mental illness... That, that that would not have been that would have been taken into account. Absolutely. Okay. So I mean, one of one of the you know things that the book looks at is the way in which uh, psychiatry at the time understood the factors that went into madness, into insanity, and of course one of the uh, great greatest factors, the ones that carried most weight, was the fact of heredity. Mm -hmm. um, this is not untrue in our time as well. You know, with all the neuroscientific um, and brain scanning input into determining whether somebody is mad or sane, that too is based on a hereditary model, biological model. Anyhow, in, in, in the late Victorian period, heredity uh, was extremely important in determining whether somebody 
was considered to be mad or sane. And Christiana's family history is a very interesting family history because her father was an extremely well-known architect. I mean, in some ways, if you like, the Richard Waters of his day. Um, um, but had gone mad, palpably mad, you know, shouting, screaming, take me off, uh, to the bin kind of mad, and had died um, insane. Her brother was considered to be slightly loopy. And I'm, so I'm using these non-technical terms because I think it describes the situation better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and her youngest brother actually had um, what we would now call a learning disability, um, but probably caused by syphilis mm-hmm. in the family, or what we now know to be syphilis in the family. So there was, there was kind of, if you like, a strong inferential case for her also to be suffering for something. And when I trace Christiana's history as much as I could, and it's very hard to trace these things, I mean, even now it's difficult because they're not allowed into clinical records, but, but then it's not, there are no clinical, clinical records to be had in, in many cases. Um, she had certainly suffered what was then called a bout of serious hysteria, serious enough for her to be taken from her uh, native town, which was then Canterbury. Maybe it was still Margate, maybe somewhere in Kent, um, up to London to see an, uh, an alienist, a psycho, uh, a psy worker, a psychiatrist. I mean, the person that she probably saw was, was equivalent to today's psychotherapist. Um, but she did go, and she was paralyzed on one side. In other words, had all the characteristics of what Charcot, whose image you see downstairs, would have considered to be hysteria. And her mother, hysteria was a common uh, word used commonly um, in respect of any women's successes. And um, it was used about Christiana. Um, and indeed it may be why she saw the doctor that she developed this passion for. Mm. Um, so. Now she ends up in Broadmoor where she leads, uh, well, uh, I think she died at the age of 74, something like that. Uh, quite a long time. Quite a long time. Yes. Uh, and, and, and there is, there is an image of Broadmoor in, in your book somewhere. Uh, from the outside. I think it's right at the front. Is yes. it right at the front from the outside? Yes, it's it, quite regal. It looks a yes, bit like uh, Downton Abbey. It's, <laughs> it looks like the kind of place where you would want to spend a long weekend, actually. <laughs> um, Behind those walls, I assume things were very different. Do, well, do you have any idea what, what life would have been? I think in the been? early days, uh-huh. um, life at Broadmoor was not so bad. I'm, I'm not saying it was a private hotel with servants, but but I think um, there was. I mean, it, it was run on the lines of the asylums that you know, I described about that and said. Um, in other words, these were caring places. Um, in which the very nature of asylum life was meant to help the mad, possibly towards a cure, but certainly to contain the worst of their excesses. So there were various forms of occupations that you could undertake. Um, there was discipline, there was uh, prayer, there was religion. Um, and um, you were guarded, of course, you weren't allowed any excesses, but you had recreations, there were balls, there was music, uh, there were, once you, you once you were quietened down and were, were uh, adhered to the disciplinary underpinnings of asylum life, 
Um, you were allowed recreation. You could go out in the grounds. Um, obviously, some people did gardening. Uh, women did sewing. They did, she did a lot of drawing and so on. So, I mean, it, you know, uh, you could say it was better than being hung. <laughs> and mm. probably mm. better for a lot of the people who were in mm. there than their everyday life in the um, you know mm. worst parts of Victorian London, mm. where where life was not exactly wonderful. I mean, the only thing that was lacking was freedom. But for a lot of people, freedom is not um, you know, a necessary essential to lives which could be extremely hard and extremely deprived. Christiana was middle class, so um, and always considered herself a lady, and, and that comes through a great many of the, the uh, records, more records of her. But but also in her in her writing, in her letters, she was a great writer, and she wrote throughout the trial. I might read you a little passage. Please. Like, um, but but what was was quite clear is that she began to enjoy once she got used to it asylum Broadmoor life and continued to fall in love with people. <laughs> and and continued to write? And continued to, to scribble and write, although we don't have any of that. Ah, right. They didn't like her writing. No, none of the psychiatrists of the time... So this wasn't preserved in the Broadmoor archives? And no, no. None of, the, none of the psychiatrists of the time actually thought women writing was good for them. Um, um, this may be true now too. What do I know? But 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 writing was not meant to be a great good for women of, of hysterical disposition, and it got a lot of people into trouble. Um, I mean, you know, before Florence Nightingale had a great breakdown, she kept a diary and she wrote intensively, and the doctors kept saying to her, "Don't." Um, all the the um, medics who were interested in neurasthenia thought writing, particularly for women, was very, very bad. I mean, it, it's super stimulated them, it excited them. Ditto as late as Virginia Woolf. I mean, when, when Virginia Woolf had her, her, her many breakdowns, the one thing the doctors insisted on was no writing. Um, and, you know, the best thing for her was rest and quiet and a lot of food. I mean, Virginia tended to get very thin in a hospital. She was fat. And she actually said... Um, hospital asylum, if you like, a rescue place. She actually said that she was never as happy as when she weighed nine stone. Not a great deal for many of us, but it seemed to be quite a lot for Virginia So, so, um, yeah, writing is not good. I will read please, a little bit Please, please, and then we move on to Marie Bien. Yes. <laughs> Do you want me to, actually, would you rather I didn't bother to read? No. I'll just read a tiny little bit to give you a sense of, of how it works. But um, there are many exciting moments in this, in this trial, particularly towards its end, which I don't want to give away, which are very interesting in terms of... of I mean, the case of Christiana is worthy of a, of a book in itself, or of a novel, or... Uh, I mean, it's so Certainly rich. Novel, I don't know if there's enough it's, for a it's, whole It's, book, it's, it's so rich, um, and... Uh, Let's see. I'll read you this a little bit. On Thursday, 24th August, this is 1871, um, a large and unusually feminine and affluent public crammed into Brighton's new courthouse well before proceedings started. You have to remember that Brighton was quite a, a, an interesting place at the time. It had a lot of uh, foreigners, i.e. continentals, migrants, who came, uh, particularly because of the Franco-Prussian War. So a lot of you know, French people would take refuge in 
part of the country, um, all the revolutions, and, and um, it did have this fantastic sort of summer palace of the, the uh, regent, which had been built there. And so it, it was quite a kind of buzzy little um, uh, spa town, if you like, a seaside town. And they had this new courthouse. Um, into which the ladies crammed well before proceedings started. Completed in 1869, this ample red brick structure trimmed with stone wearing a royal coat of arms over its west entrance on the corner of Church Street, conveni- conveniently close to Grand Parade, where both Christiana and um, Dr. Beard lived, proved too small for the excitement the case had generated. Many were turned away and had to settle for the numerous press accounts that appeared in papers across the nation. The hearing began shortly after 11. According to the Daily News account, this is a quote, the accused sat at a corner of the ordinary prisoner's dock, being attired in a black silk dress, black clay shawl, and black bonnet with veil. Christiana's demeanor was throughout quiet and self-possessed, but she occasionally glanced round the court with evident interest in the scene. Other papers describe her with a pencil in her hand, methodically making notes or looking about her like a diva and acknowledging acquaintances. The Times has her fair, well-dressed and self-possessed, and smiling as descriptions were given of the pains taken to trace the band administering the poisons. Like some observer of her own fate, Christiana seems to be enjoying the excitement she has generated around her. At least on the surface, she seems indifferent to the hearing's possible outcome. Her dramatic black may be a signal of modesty or of mourning. She was a woman who cared about clothes and the significances of appearance. It is tempting to see in her choice of dress an echo of Wilkie Collins's fatally seductive heroine in Armadale, the poisoning and poisonous Lydia Gwilt, who hides her powers behind the ladylike garb of a thick black veil, a black bonnet, and a black silk dress. Christiana's assiduous note-taking is so, also much reported. She is evidently an educated woman, and one for whom writing counts. The facts that Charles Beard, the facts, sorry, that Charles Beard held on to her letters for so long before destroying some and handing others over to the police may also suggest that these letters carried some kind of resonance for her, as they patently did for her. It is interesting to note that unstoppable writing seems to play a crucial part in many of these excessive and dangerous love stories, from Christiana's own to our contemporary stalkers. Um, and it's very interesting how much email um, and the web is used by contemporary stalkers mm. to, to, to um, actually, if you like, signal and perhaps also um, to signal their passion, but also perhaps to create the, the grandeur of it. To, to give it more significance and to feed the imagination um, because fantasy is a very important part of all the crimes that I've, I've talked about. And, uh, you know, it's not clear from anywhere in the evidence whether Christiana's love affair with her doctor and history is full of love affairs that women uh, have, passions that women have for the people who pay most attention to them and perhaps physically touch them their lives to touch them. Um, there are many um, of these love affairs. And, you know, one of the reasons we're talking here, of course, is that Freud knows this. And, and, and of course, his entire disquisition on transference and counter-transference is to do with the love uh, that particularly 
have for um, the people who pay attention to them in that particular way, which is also part of any cure. So that's that maybe for question time. <laughs> well, let's let's move to Paris. Okay. <laughs> Just um, Marie Bière, um, a young singer who falls in love and it's consummated because uh, there is a child. So she falls in love with uh, Roger Gentien, I think. Robert. Robert. Robert Gentien. Well, remember. Uh, who is a man of the world. Um, she falls pregnant. Uh, there is a child. The child is taken away from her. Uh, the child, for whatever reason, I can't remember now, dies. Uh, and shortly after, uh, she also senses that Roger, Robert, uh, we need to look at the... Robert, Robert, Robert. Robert, Robert. <laughs> um, Robert goes cold, let's say. Um, and she decides to take revenge. Um, so unlike Christiana, who doesn't take revenge on Dr. Beard, and she could have done, because in a sense her love for him also remained uh, to some extent unanswered, uh, Marie decides to take revenge on, uh, on, on her actual lover. She takes a gun and decides to shoot him. He survives, but she's taken to court, and interestingly, uh, the French, they, well, uh, this is a psychiatric assessment, they come to the conclusion, it's a crime passionnel, and they let her go. So, I mean, the first thing that strikes is uh, the difference with which the French approach uh, cases like this. Um, because in the case of Marie, uh, well, there is evidence that she really tried to kill her lover oh, yeah, she, in this case. I mean, there's she, no there's no doubt about it. Um, in the in the case of Christiana, she says she's sorry he didn't die. Yes, precisely. So, in the case of Christiana, although the evidence is against her. You, you could still argue, well, the person who died was collateral damage. In this case, she really wanted to kill her lover. But they decide this is a crime of passion, and, and they let her go. Um, Are you upset? No, I'm, I'm not upset. I'm not... <laughs> I mean, I'm quite upset in some ways, you know. I've Why are you upset? Oh, really? Oh, really? Yes, I mean, I, I'm not sure that... You, you, know, you, you, you think, you, you, you think, uh, right. But, but you know, I, I'm quite happy to be with her at the same time. <laughs> um, well, I mean, when I... When I, I sit back, when, I think, you know, she did commit a crime. Um, don't forget, one thing one should say, and I remind myself, she did spend quite a long time in jail awaiting the trial. Sure. Um, and during its course as well. But... Yeah. Nonetheless, she, she was acquitted by a jury mm -hmm. of 12 good men and true, maybe even 14, I can't remember. Um, so, one thing to say about this is that one of the reasons... If I, I may interrupt you there. Um, the point I, I think I was going to make, um, uh, and I wasn't upset because I, I, I read it 
with an interest in, in the discourses, in, in, in the conflicting uh, discursive practices, you could say, rather than in... Uh, although you do feel sympathy on occasion for the characters involved, uh, I was more interested in, in, in the interplay between the discourses. But so in this case, in a sense, the French decide that um, she's neither bad nor mad, or if she's mad, it, 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 it was a momentary, temporary um, a, a, a loss of, of reason. Um, so, so they didn't see it as, as something that was an essence uh, that, 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 that represented her personality. Uh, am I correct in interpreting? That's absolutely right. I mean, I think one of the, I mean, one of the reasons I went to France with this is not only because the French, of course, love the idea of the conversion, um, but also because the way in which the legal process uh, happens in France is, is completely other than the way in which happens in Britain. And I think it's one of the reasons that um, psychiatry and psychoanalysis took off in France uh, with, with a kind, in the kind of way that it did, uh, very differently from the way in which it, it from its, its British history, if you like. So one of the things that happens in the French courtroom is that it is already a psychological process. In other words, um, the investigating magistrate, you know, they, the person who committed the crime is locked up. The investigating magistrate takes over the case. You've all seen this on television because the system hasn't changed from the mm. uh, 1880s all that much. Some of the laws have changed, but not all that mm. significantly. Um, there is no longer any exoneration for male crimes of passion, which there was in the old Golden Bullion, um, where a man could kill his wife if she had been betrayed and, um, and was found in um, women couldn't, but they, they had some recourse. Um, that, anyhow, that's one of the, so what am I saying? I'm saying that the law takes place in a very different way. And the, the procedure is that the examining magistrate builds up a picture of the case. And the picture of the case is also, if you like, a psychological profile of the accused. So psychology already comes into it, and a sense of, if you like, the character of the accused and the character of the accused is a given. Okay? So it's not like in Britain, where everything is complete. The, the, the court procedure um, and the, the weighing up of the crime is based totally on evidence. If there had been no evidence to link Christiana Edmonds to the poison in chocolate that had been distributed throughout Brighton, there would have been no case against her, whatever. And there would have been no inquiry into her character at all. Whatever, you know, however she might have looked in the dog. British uh, uh, justice is based on material evidence. French, French justice, in the first instance, is based on the psychology of the criminal and, um, or the person who is accused. And that's why perhaps somebody like César Lombroso, great criminologist who believed in, in kind of innate um, criminality, could take off in France, but never took off in Britain. Because we actually still, although it has changed quite a lot in, in the latter part of the last century and into now, uh, don't think of the born criminal. We don't think that people are essentially of a type which allows them to create crimes over and over again. We look at each crime okay. until recently, but separately, each crime is a separate crime. Okay? It's not to do with the psychology of the person who... Mm. Sorry. 
But I was just going to say that the French, the French psychiatrists, did dabble in hereditary degeneration. Mm-hmm. And, and, and what was that? Well, precisely. I was just going to say, in a, in a sense, it's an understatement. I mean, there's this, this, this probably a longer history of uh, la degenerescence in, 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 in French mm-hmm. uh, clinical psychiatry than, than there is in... Um, uh, in British psychiatry, um, but, it, but it would seem to be that in this particular case, and and there may have been others, and no doubt there were others, um, they identify this momentary lapse of reason, and, and on account of that, they, they let her go. Yes, because the crime of passion is not a crime that is going to be repeated. Right? If I want to kill my lover, or if my lover wants to kill me, it's quite likely in these particular cases, that he won't kill again. I mean, you know, he can wander the streets quite safely and nothing will happen. Um, But if um, it's another kind of crime, if it's a shoplifter, quite likely it will be a crime. (laughs) But crimes of passion are not crimes that were committed again and again. Um, And that's why, in a sense, I think Christiana's was a crime of passion. She was not somebody who can constantly went around poisoning people. Um, she committed that crime because of a particular emotional constellation, not, not one that was repeated. And the French already know this. So crimes of passion have a different des- dispensation. They're not domestic crimes. Domestic crimes tend to be repeated, but crimes of passion are not. And, and so there's a sense, you know, of why should we arrest this woman? She's not dangerous to anyone. She's only dangerous to that particular man. Well, she could fall in love again. <laughs> well, she did, and she married. I mean, I was the first person to have traced this, the fact that she did marry several years later and had a child, which is a good thing. Um, and she married a Romanian count. <laughs> um, I need to be mindful of the time, and I do want the audience to yes. um, uh, ask questions as well. So, so, the whole, so the whole relationship, again, between the psychiatrists um, and the law, in France is different because the psychiatrists immediately work with the investigative magistrate. They're called in very early on to give assessments. Uh, I mean, Lacan first worked as a forensic psychiatrist um, and made assessments of um, people the police brought in. Um, So it's a long and um, working tradition. And this is its genesis. For the last part of our conversation, before I open it up to the audience, let's move to Manhattan. Let's move to Manhattan. Things are much more dangerous. Well, I was going to say where things seem to be much more driven, perhaps inevitably by money, more, than, any, more, more than anything else. Uh, this is the case, ladies and gentlemen, for those of you who haven't read the book, of um, a very wealthy person uh, called Harry Thor. Who, um, who is married to uh, an absolutely stunning, gorgeous uh, young woman, Evelyn Nesbitt. And, and, and at one point he discovers that his, um, his wife, before she became involved with, uh, with him, before they were married, um, had had, what should we call it, a fling. Um, an affair. An affair, an affair. With, um, with Stanford, Stanny, Stanny White. And, uh, 
uh, who himself, who himself uh, is a very famous architect. Yes, so two architects in this book. It's really strange. I mean, I couldn't work out a line on this. <laughs> <laughs> it's just serendipitous. Well, but in this case, he doesn't go mad. Uh, in this case, he gets shot. Uh, so Stanford White, he's a, a very famous uh, architect in, in, in New York. Uh, the case is 1904, 1905, uh, if I remember well, 1906. And, and, and Harry Thor uh, decides to take revenge. Not on his immediate rival, you could say, not even on his former rival. He, de- he, de- he decides to take revenge on his wife's former lover. Uh, everything seems carefully planned. Uh, they, they meet in, in the roof garden of the Madison Square Garden Hotel. Uh, he shoots him. Uh, Stanny White dies. Uh, he's taken to court. And then it really becomes interesting. <laughs> Um, it was pretty interesting before. <laughs> well, it was pretty interesting before, but, but no. But if you're interested in the interplay between between the legal system and and, and the psychiatrists, in in a sense, the case of Harry Thor is the most interesting one of the three. It's um, the most contemporary one. It's the one that probably because it's the most history. contemporary one. So so he's declared um, NGRI not guilty by reason of insanity. Uh, spends a couple of years in. Asylum is then released, then gets into trouble again because this is a man who, well, has a bit of a temper, uh, and 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 I think that he, (laughs) well, he's violent, he's abusive, and uh, and I think Evelyn, who also led a a very long life, uh, died in the late 1960s, I think. Um, uh, Subsequently, actually. Should we say revealed about the hardship and, and, and the physical abuse that she had to endure at the hands of her husband. So, um, so he, again, he comes into conflict with the law, and and and, and then he's in and out, but in, eventually uh, he, he's a free man. But when I read this story, as I said at the beginning, and and, and you allude to it yourself, well, actually, it's very explicit. Money plays a major role in all this, right? This is a man who is not only well-known, he, he, he is wealthy, he is influential, he has connections, and, and my God, he uses them. Yeah, he's a millionaire. <laughs> and in today's terms, a billionaire. So, well, I, I mean, the reason I chose this case is because it was one of the great, notorious turn-of-the-century cases. But it's also probably one of those kind of core cases for the development of the relationship between psychiatry and the law in America. Because there is so much money in the family, and because um, um, Thor's mother thinks the world of her son, um, there are something like 30 psychiatrists called in to work on this case for the defense, um, some of them also for the prosecution. And they all give evidence in court and this evidence is reported, I mean, these interrogations are reported throughout the country and in Europe as well, because he's a very rich man, and she, even Nesbitt, his, his child wife in a way, um, is a very well-known photographer's model. I mean, she's the equivalent of Kate Moss mm-hmm. in her day, um, but also had done um, you know, some stage work. She'd worked in, in, on Broadway. 
Um, and, you know, you see her face, and indeed her very slender and pretty uh, saucy body on, you know, soaps, soap wrappings, and everywhere else. I mean, she, she's extraordinary. So, it's a case that captures the imagination, and the language of the psychiatrist is also a way of thinking about what motivates how people are to consider their emotions and their excesses. And this is put in large, writ large, across America. And it's, if you like, one of the great first public moments, just before Freud's visit to America, one of the great public moments of thinking psychiatrically um, in the public sphere. You have to remember that, that you know many of the things that are talked about in the courts and then reported are never, never otherwise voiced anywhere else. Even fiction doesn't necessarily work so publicly and so openly with this material, which is the material of sex, um, the material of, of, of passion, um, the material of inhibition, repression, sadism, I mean, you know, the whole gamut. And this is suddenly out there in the public sphere, where it had not been before. I mean, one of the things that's interesting, that's part of the progression book in the, the Christiana Edmonds case, is that the judge really doesn't want to have evidence of where anything about sexuality is spoken, where anything about the emotions is spoken. He really only wants to know about the trail of the poisons. All right? So there's a whole area of repression in the thing, and I won't give it away in case you read it, but there's a moment towards the end of the trial when suddenly all this goes... That's right. Explodes. Yeah. It, it explodes it in a very interesting way. Um, by the time you get to America and um, Harry K. Thor, um, you have the language of um, sadism, of perversion, of, of um, that kind of sexual excess spoken in the courtroom and advertised, if you like, because it is a form of advertising or openly put out sphere. And people are discussing it. People are discussing the role of women. What are women able to do? What should they not be able to do? That's why I concentrate on women. But also the relationship of men to women. Are men the great upholders of virtue? Harry Thaw's defense of himself is that he was upholding the virtue of American women. I mean, this is That's like right. an honor to I mean, yeah? I mean, this is extraordinary. I mean, when I read this, apart from you know, the money aspect, I thought that uh, in doing what he did, in, in well, he didn't particularly privilege his career, maybe a little bit, but but his public profile. <laughs> he didn't have his, a public profile. Well, no, but he was just but, a but, rich man. <laughs> he was a rich man, but 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 despite the sensationalism and, and everything surrounding the court case, he was actually seen as representing. Uh, well, good American values. I'm exaggerating, but, he, but there's, there's something... He thought he had acted on the unwritten law. In other words, he was defending female virtue, um, you know, upholding the honor of his wife, and therefore he, it was fine for him to kill, you know, this very, very talented um, architect, because this architect had outrageous tastes, um, sexual proclivities. It was, it's, it's, you know, I mean, one never only does history as a writer. You, you're also thinking about the present as well, inevitably, even if you're doing it unconsciously. I think I'm just doing mm. it consciously as well. <laughs> that, uh, you know, these things replay themselves mm. in interesting ways. And it's happening now, um, this battle between morality, if you like, or 
it's called yeah. virtue, and and um, uh, old sexual peccadilloes, yeah. and how they then come into the legal sphere where they're now. I mean, many of the issues that you discuss, although they are set in the long 19th century, you could say, are still very relevant for for um, discussions. One of the things today. that makes them relevant is the beginning of this language of the mind sciences, That's right. like the psychiatric sciences. Um, Freud doesn't come into this very much, because Freud actually, I mean, I don't know if this is a question you were going to ask me. Well, I wasn't. No. But I'll answer it anyway. <laughs> okay, then we'll, we'll, we'll get to your questions. I mean, yes. Freud doesn't come into this very much, although I quote him right at the beginning of the book. Um, because Freud actually, when he was asked to deal with the law, said the discourses, the language, the, the events, if you like, the, the stuff that came up in the analytic consulting room was not something that could be taken because the kinds of truths that were being sought in the two places were very, very different. So the truth that is being sought for um, through therapy or through analysis is very different from the kind of evidential truth that you want in poetry. I mean, Freud would not have gone into the memory, becoming uh, memory courtrooms. He would not have gone into the abuse courtrooms simply because the truth of the psyche is not truths of the law. They, they exist on different planes. It's not that he thought the courts were wrong. It's just that there was no space to talk about guilt and innocence. Uh, you know, as he says in one, the, the one article he writes about the law, um, you know, a person uh, can weep over a crime which they're accused, and that weeping will make the accuser think that person is guilty. But they may be weeping just because they feel guilty. And any crime that they're accused of, they will weep over. And one is that that's the truth, if you like, of the consulting room, uh, which is very different from, from you know, what happens in the courtroom. You can't tell in the lie detector test whether somebody is actually guilty of a crime. They may just get very heated when they're accused of things. And like Kafka, you know, say, yes, I'm guilty. Of course I'm guilty. I'm human. You know, I was raised in a family. Therefore, I am guilty. Um, I'm, I'm tempted to ask you a question about Ruth Ellis, and, uh, which you know you, uh, you mentioned in, uh, in your coda, or indeed about Oscar Pistorius, which you could construct in, in a certain way as a crime of passion. But I suggest that we open it up to questions from the audience. We have a good 20 minutes or so. Only if you want to, otherwise we'll go have a drink. <laughs> <laughs> Who wants to start, start us off? Well, it, it's, different. it's a difficult one because we've been talking about intricate cases. And, uh, Could you comment on E.L. Doctorow's approach to that particular case? In his I love it. I love citing it. was trying to do something very, very different because what he was interested in was the link between Evelyn Nesbitt and uh, uh, the leader of the anarchists, Red Emma. Um, and um, that's not particularly what I'm interested in. What, but what he had caught on to what, what, if you like, stimulated him, was that Evelyn Nesbitt was a modern woman. She was, if you like, uh, uh, she could stand in for all the new women because of her own history and her own, if you like, slight wildness. Um, she, he, doesn't, he doesn't go into her, her past very much. He, he 
gives her this, this uh, aura of, of anarchism and falling in love with a strange, wandering um, immigrant. Um, um, that wasn't the case. I mean, it's easy enough to imagine that she might have behaved like that. She's very, very intelligent, um, and he makes her very intelligent. And she's very intelligent from a strange background. Her, her, her father was a lawyer who died young, and um, she was left to be raised by a mother who was completely incapable of you know, doing anything, really. Not, you know, probably like many women of her time. I mean, you know, as a kind of middle-class woman, she had absolutely no skills, and she had little family to depend on, and she didn't know how to raise her two children once the breadwinner in the household had gone. And even um, this extraordinarily pretty little girl was spotted by an artist in, in, in Pennsylvania, time where they were then living after, well, after her father died, five years after, and um, was actually taken up by the artistic world, first by the women, because women had very few models whom they could use to draw, and there was this, this, this child, this, this 14-year-old, um, who, who had this genius for posing, who could sit very still for long periods of time, and um, through this community of, of artists, she was recommended to other artists in New York, and then to a photographer. And she had a genius for the camera. Mm. The camera loved her. Partly, and, and this is one of the themes of the story that I tell, because she was so slender. She was very, very... You know, she was nubile. She was just a girl um, when she started posing for the cameras. And the style of the epoch was, of course, rather large, um, and, and more matronly. But here was Evelyn, this new woman whom the camera adored and who um, just elicited everyone's gaze and made her way in the world through that and eventually supported the family um, through her abilities. Um, in ragtime, this is also the case. I mean, she is very beautiful, but, but I think the link doctor was most interested in was the link to the anarchist movement. And um, you could think of Evelyn as an anarchist, I mean, who disrupted many lives. But, you know, reality is always rather messier than fiction. <laughs> and and um, uh, her story is, is messier than the, than the one that time gives us. It's a great, great book, though. Um, wonderful book. The, there is a film about this case, isn't there? Uh, the girl in the red swing? In the, that, yes, in, in the red velvet swing. The red velvet swing, yes. Yeah. You can, her story was told, um, and her love affair with Stanford White. And it, I think it was a love affair. I mean, I think, you know, um, she wrote several memoirs, whether they were ghosted or not is not clear. Um, I suspect they probably were, because they're so different in style and tone. And although we writers can change our ways, we can't change them all that much. Um, but nonetheless, the first one is, is very literary and tells the story of how Stanford White, Stanford White, apart from, you know, effectively raping her or seducing her, depending on which epoch you inhabit, I mean, he then did take care of her, he didn't just abandon her, um, sure. um, also educated her. So she, who had never had an education, was educated through this older man who read gave her books to read and talked to her about Shakespeare and Chekhov and you know, Tolstoy. I mean, it's quite extraordinary, her range of reference. And in the courtroom as well. And she, she's a very 
um, she's a good actress, if that is what she is doing. Or she's a very intelligent woman, I suspect she was both. And, and she could capture the courtroom and actually tell the story in defense of her husband, because she wanted to defend him. Um, you know, they were married, and, and this was her way in the world. And she told it extremely well for the entire nation, quite extraordinarily well. Um, whether she thought he was mad or not is, is um, I mean, she says sometimes he is, and other times she says he's not. Depends what you know what face she's looking at. He seems to be pretty balmy. Um, um, certainly, you know, by by the well, deranged is the word I was going to use. <laughs> <laughs> if you read about his deranged. story, but, but it's, you it's... know, derangement here and drug taking is it's not that sure. easy to pull apart. Sure. Um, sure. what acts were done under sure. drug taking, what acts were. But he seems, if you, he wrote a memoir, which I, I, I quote, and you see that in his prose that he's very, very strange. I mean, his ellipses are strange. His syntactical configurations are strange. People's writing is very revelatory of many things. Who wants to ask another question? Don't be afraid. No, I won't, I won't. Well, a lot of research, research took place in archives. Um, most of the police archives of that period have actually moved into um, the archival holdings. So, um, the, the, the French police archives are all in the, the Bibliothèque de Paris archival resource way out in, in the sticks, not the nicest part of Paris town. Still, nice enough building. And that there, luckily, some of them were saved. You know, a lot of archives in the period also burned, so there wasn't access to the full range of the period, but, but quite a lot. And it's very, very interesting to look at that archive. I mean, you know, when you're constructing a book, you're doing something very different from doing just research. But the archives are quite rich in, in crimes of passion. Um, and quite often, the medics, uh, the alienists, the psychiatrists, get a look in. Um, and when you say, you know, how did you decide on, on this one? Well, I decided on this one, on Marie Vier, for example, plus a few of the others dotted around her, because I was actually tracing on her sure. um, in that period, um, and, you know, vitriol and all of these things. Um, um, there are quite interesting elements in these archives about where the doctors come in and where they decide people have got a, a psychiatric illness and where they don't. Um, and there's some very interesting forms of pleading as well that take place in the French courts. In the English courts, um, the material is, I mean, it's also there. Um, but, you know, the main crimes of passion in England, the ones we remember, we hardly had a psychiatrist come in. They weren't called in. It was just assumed that these were bad mm. people. Mm. Um, and once you've committed what sometimes happens is that after the guilty verdict comes, there is an appeal, and in that case, insanity comes in to play more strongly than it did in the courtroom. Mm -hmm. And the, the um, my doctors in Britain, I mean, you know, Maudsley himself, for example, complained of the fact that, whereas it was very easy to um, bring psychiatrists into the civil courts, and usually easy to somebody was demented in the civil courts. In the criminal courts, it was almost impossible. 
I mean, you also spend quite a bit of time looking at newspaper reports, and, and in each and every case, um, one can say that, that the press coverage is, is, is vast, it's sensationalist. I mean, I, I think you point out correctly uh, how important those reports were uh, in terms of, well, both extending the influence of psychiatry, but also, and more importantly perhaps, um, constructing a certain image of, of madness, uh, if not an image about femininity. An image of femininity, but also a, an image of the way in which emotions work, how they can run away with you when they do. And I mean, all the, those, you know, those sort of everyday things, if you like, which psychiatrists also look at. I mean, I'm sorry, I didn't fully answer your question. Um, there, 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 you know, there are letters in the British archives from the psychiatrists to to describe what they think is going wrong. And they do use the languages of psychiatry of the day. In the, in the, you know, as the periods progress, they, they change their language. Um, um, and that's quite interesting. The um, French, they've got very full reports, and they're written to a pattern. So the, there's a way in which they do this, because it's become bureaucratized, and you know, certain things always come in. But, but they're not that different from what goes on now. If you talk to psychiatrists now who report um, um, to courts, who give forensic evidence, forensic opinion, um, they have uh, uh, a template, if you like, for the way in which those reports come. You're nodding your heads. You know that you've done this. Of <laughs> um, the, way, the way in which that, that pans out. And so um, you can find repetitions too. You can find the way in which classifications... Uh, which classifications may work and which classifications won't work so well for um, the accused or for the prosecution. Mm. Mm. No, please, 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 please. Sure. Uh, I was also interested in, in looking at the French um, legal approach and how much more psychologized that was and everything, and that it was about Be what? Transposed onto the legal system. Well, certainly, yeah, I mean, you know, certainly there's a sense in which there are born criminals, as, as you move on the scale. Trials of passion don't necessarily go into that. So the doctors will discount them, okay? The doctors will come in and say, um, yes, it, it's clear that her mother had this and this wrong with her, or blah, 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 blah. but we don't necessarily think that you know, that she shows the signs of this. There's no reason to believe. They can say that, or they say, well, yes, there is reason to believe. They don't necessarily fall into the uh, current psychiatric predictive, you know, profiling model of the worst kind. Um, but they can. Um, it, ver it varies enormously. Uh, after Lombroso and, and that kind of criminology comes in, they do it for a while, a little more. Um, Mostly they're interested in showing that, you know, 
the emotions work on the nervous system, and they will, you know, induce you to do certain things which um, you might or you mightn't do again. Uh, women who are inevitably irrational to begin with and who are closer to unreason than men are more prone um, to have their reason overturned and therefore more, more easily claim to be um, mad um, than men. You just said you had a question. Technically untrue. I'm just interested to this thematic distinction um, between the three cases. In the first, there's an emphasis on objective evidence. The second, in France, more interested in the subject of crusade psychological. You, you were foregrounding money in the third. Um, could you, can you make the point a bit more or say what, how that manifested? Obviously, you hired 30 psychologists or whatever. <laughs> what, what was the point there? And what, what did it say perhaps about the distinction between the American? Yes, I mean, I, I, I think it's, it's true that he is a millionaire, but I don't, I think, I don't think that actually played into oh, the way he was treated by the courts. I think what it did do was that it allowed the family to hire a great many psychiatrists. Oh. And in fact, I think his, um, the prosecutor for the city of New York, who tried the case, was emphatically trying to prove that you know, millionaires can't get away with shouldn't get away with murder. He was actually trying to clean up the legal system. And th this, this um, dichotomy, if you like, these two sides, that millionaires can get away with anything, and no, they mustn't be allowed to get away with anything, very much influences um, the way American justice takes place, as you know from all the films and television programs which, which deal with this. Um, my own sense of this is that... Um, I'm, I'm actually with the prosecuting lawyer that if this crime had been done in Little Italy uh, by uh, a member of the then mafia, there would have been no question that insanity, a possible plea of insanity, would not would have entered the courtroom. But because they were rich, it did come into the courtroom. But once it had come into the courtroom, and so many eminent psychiatrists were given space, uh, it became more usual, if you like, to allow them into the courtroom. So, and that's why, in a sense, I looked at the case, apart from the fact that I think Ingram Nesbitt and Stanhope White are really interesting people. Um, but, it, but it was kind of a, a moment for alienism for the psychiatrists, who, who didn't have that many places to be public. Of course, you know, they were off in their asylums, and gradually they moved into private practice. It was a moment which it began to shift. Um, but, but certainly they didn't yet have prominence, uh, public prominence, and they began to when all this was played large. Um, but yes, I mean, you know, I think the press was very kind to him because he was a millionaire. The women writers, and this was one of the first cases where women came into the courtroom and, and actually you know, reported on the case, um, they all loved him, even though it was quite clear if we read about him, that, you know, he's, he's very much a suitable case for treatment and you don't want to go close to him. <laughs> but, you know, they, yeah, a millionaire, you know, he's kind of a sweet man defending women's virtue, which women also believe in, don't forget. Sorry. This is just a quickie. Um, Janet Malcolm, a couple of years ago, wrote, I can't remember the complete title, but he Yes, I, I remember the book too, and I yes. can't remember the topic. But what, what interested me in your talking about whether or not a woman was portrayed as decorous 
um, search for justice. I mean, all those things that Lacan would say take you into the territory of the law. Um, well, I think and here in, well, those three cases, uh, and no doubt also in others, it, it shows in, in, in the planning. Although Harry Thor uh, takes a gun and, and shoots his, what, what should we call him, his former rival, there must his have been... His rival? In his well, imagination? In his, in his imagination, it's his rival, and, and there is planning involved. It, it looks like the spur of the moment, but at the same time, there's planning. Um, and I think you can probably say the same about Christiane Edmonds and, and about uh, Matthew. Well, in, in her case, it's, it's quite clear, in Christiane's case, you know, she has to get poison. It's an elaborate process to right, poison. So, so um, what often happens is that the delusionary structure in, in, in the delusionary effects in, in the perpetrator's mind um, are done in the name of justice. So, if you like, you're, you're already working within the terminology of the law. Um, you know, Marie Biel thinks she's killing this man because he has done wrong. And so, if you like, there's an eye for an eye form of justice, a, a, a more primitive form of justice than the kind that, that we think uh, our societies work on. But there is an idea of justice in her mind. Um, it's quite clear with Harry K. Thor that there is an idea of justice in his mind. He is ridding the world of somebody who actually is his lookalike, his rival, that he thinks shouldn't exist. Um, somebody who has done wrong. Um, where where the idea of justice doesn't come into play quite so much visibly is in Christiana Edmund's case because um, you know she didn't, she really didn't mean to kill this child. It's not what she was trying to do. She was trying to win her lover back, and she thought by getting rid of his life, his wife, <laughs> she would actually be bettering his life uh, by allowing him to have her. So that's if you like the delusionary structure. Um, there may be more delusion there than we know because we don't know whether there was a relationship between them or not. Um, I think there probably was something which allowed her to think that there was, um, as in the case of many stalkers and erotomaniacs um, or erotomans. Um, there, there's usually some kind of contact um, which precipitates illusions or illusions. I mean, I, the book I wrote before this was called All About Love. And one of the reasons I'm interested in all of this is that um, if, if you look at, at you know, the, the manifold natures of love in, in All About Love, I try to look at the, um, if you like, the like history of love. And it's more benign side um, and, and the way it actually you know, riches and, and does all of that. And, and at the illusion that's necessarily in Play. But where that illusion strays into delusion, you very often come into the crimes of passion. So, is that an answer? Okay, now I think we have to stop. <laughs> <laughs>